0: Welcome to Bank Talk with the Institute of International Bankers, where we talk with and about the foreign banking community in the United States. Thank you so much for joining us, and please be sure to subscribe so you never miss a beat with the IIB. Welcome back to another episode of Bank Talk with the Institute of International Bankers. We are thrilled to have with us two experts on, well, a number of things, but especially on part 500 and cyber enforcement, which will be the subject of our discussion. Today, I'm joined by Maria Filipakis, who is the president of the Topside Group, a firm committed to helping companies across the financial services sector develop regulatory frameworks and strategies on an array of regulatory compliance, enforcement, and supervisory issues. Prior to founding the Topside Group, Maria was the Executive Deputy Superintendent of the Capital Markets Division at the New York Department of Financial Services. In that role, she led the department's agency-wide cybersecurity, fintech, and virtual currency initiatives, including the writing of Section 500, which I'm so excited to dig into shortly. We're also pleased to welcome Matt Levine back to the show. Uh, Matt was one of our early guinea pigs when we first launched Bank Talk last year, and I'm very happy that we didn't scare you away, Matt. Matt's the president of Financial and Regulatory Compliance Services at Guidepost Solutions, one of the IIB's prized gold associate professional members. And similar to Maria, before joining Guidepost, Matt was executive deputy superintendent for enforcement at New York DFS. There, he supervised numerous investigations and enforcement actions, including complex matters involving money laundering, terrorist financing, cybercrime and cybersecurity, virtual currency fraud, market manipulation, tax fraud, and consumer fraud. Matt, Maria, thank you all so much for joining us on Bank Talk. Um, Nobody's tuned in to to listen to me, so I just want to go ahead and dive right in. Um, Maria, you were one of the driving forces behind Part 500. Can you first briefly give us a quick summary of Part 500 for anyone listening that may not be totally immersed in this world, Uh, and then go into a little bit about how the reg came about and what was your and DFS's thinking behind it?
1: Sure. Well, first of all, thank you very much. I know I wasn't an early guinea pig, but I'm really happy to uh, be doing this today. Uh, So for all of those who uh, may not be as familiar, uh, part 500 is the kind of first in a nation cybersecurity regulation uh, that the DFS put out now in uh, 2017. Uh, the regulation is really designed to promote the protection of customer information, as well as the information technology systems of all the entities it regulates. So that's kind of it in a, in a nutshell. Um, what the thinking really behind it was, and, and how did the regulation come about, it's kind of an interesting story. So um, I'll start off with what we were thinking. What we were really thinking is risk, right? Um, one of the main reasons the DFS was created, Uh, was to address the the risks of regulatory gaps. In other words, uh, we wanted to make sure that something wasn't falling between the cracks of insurance and banking regulatory regimes and to identify and address anything that could be considered an emerging risk. So when I was at the DFS, we watched the scale and breadth of a whole host of various breaches and, and incidents. And frankly, at the time, it was a no brainer for the department we would seek to really better understand uh, the critical issue facing dfs regulated entities so this is exactly the kind of risk essentially that the agency was created for Um, we thought carefully about how do you get involved in the space what do we do next and we really wanted to understand this risk pretty complicated and sophisticated and better get an understanding of what dfs regulated entities uh, were doing to identify and dress cyber risk so we spoke to Different firms, cybersecurity experts, state and federal regulators, as well as other stakeholders, and decided that an initial step would be to send out surveys to over 200 uh, banking organizations and insurance companies, asking them a whole host of things, right? The, The initial surveys covered everything from really super technical questions to questions about how resources were allocated internally to what role. Uh, the C-suite and the board played in in cyber issues. Um, And then the findings from these surveys actually led to several actions, right? We we, uh, finalized and uh, published these reports in 2014 and 15. And if I'm not mistaken, I think some of these reports are probably still on the DFS website. We decided to expand and revise uh, DFS exams so that they were more cyber focused. And then ultimately, we decided to do a standalone report on the issue of uh, third-party service providers, uh, which frankly is probably, of all the reports, the one that I think we received the uh, the most attention on. Um, you know, in, in short, there was a lot of work that was done and there were really several broad, I think, conclusions and concerns that emerged. There were lots of companies out there that took significant steps to bolster their cybersecurity initiatives, but there were also many, Uh, that were either behind the curve or facing serious challenges. And as we all kind of internally thought about this, uh, the uh, the ultimate decision was that this was uh, uh, the most perfect sort of comprehensive approach here would be to put out a regulation.
0: That makes a lot of sense. And I want to in a second get into kind of what the industry's reaction was to, to these regs. But before we do that, um, you know, because I always wanna find an angle for the FBOs. Uh, we had Superintendent Lacewell uh, speak at an IIB event, um, I guess about a year ago. Um, and you know, she was kind of getting into this thinking behind it and then how and why it came about. And um, she, she mentioned that at least in part, you know, the idea was that sometimes the foreign branches have trouble getting the resources and the commitment and the attention from home office that they need. You know, the thinking is like, okay, you're part of a global system you don't need anything different or whatever. Um, And so the idea behind these certifications was that having to do so would allow the foreign branches to get the resources they would need so they can actually submit it. I assume it's true because she said that, but can you give us a little more insight into into that thinking and how kind of that very, I think, interesting and specific um, FBO piece came into play?
2: Um, Sure, I'll address that one, Megan. so you know my reaction to that is that what uh, superintendent lacewell said was really not inconsistent at all with the dfs philosophy as it had grown up since really the inception of the agency in 2011. i think that um because with with so many of the fbo's uh are very large operations for these global institutions you know they have very significant commercial operations they derive a lot of funding uh, for other parts of their institution from the New York operation. Um, you know, sometimes they have uh, uh, other parts of the business that are associated with the F with the FBO that's located in New York. And so the thinking was, and 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 this is not saying whether or not I agree with it or whether I know it's very controversial, but I think it's consistent with the view that. Um, because the FBOs uh, can be so central to the global operations of many of these institutions, that ensuring that they had um, sufficient protection because of the key role that they played um, was was the reason that you know they were drawn into the regulation and and why Superintendent Placewell defended it that way, and you can see that across the agency's approach, for example, with um, the the other. Sort of more recent regulation, Part 504, which covers transaction monitoring and sanctions filtering. Again, that's based, you know, for the FBO in New York, but frequently the compliance program is enter- enterprise-wide. You can't sort of segregate out the operations of the FBO, and so I think the concern of DFS is how do we ensure that the, um, the operations, the compliance operations in the FBO. Are consistent with the stronger operations that might be across the enterprise.
0: Got it. Thanks for letting me put you on the spot, there, Matt. <laughs> uh, you know, so I'm, Matt I'm couldn't Denny
1: agree president. more with Matt.
0: <laughs> <laughs> uh, so, okay, turning back back on track. Um, I do, Maria or Matt. I think Maria's probably the one that had wanted to answer this. But what okay. was the industry's reaction, kind of both uh, before and after Part Five Hundred came out?
1: <laughs> well want, wanted to address it is probably too strong. I, <laughs> well, <it's laughs> I'll, address it. It. I'll address it. Um I, I think a real a real range of reactions, right? Uh there were there were many in the industry who, believe it or not, welcomed it, right? Others who thought uh, it's too expensive, right? It's too prescriptive. Um uh, and there there were some who still, believe it or not, didn't necessarily see cyber as a risk that was equal or equivalent uh, to other risks that they considered what I like to call like the big risks, right? Like financial risk or liquidity risk. This was still somewhat a siloed IT problem. Um, And then there were those who felt that it very much uh, validated uh, their concerns, right? Concerns that they were raising sort of internally. So I think it was a real range within industry and and, and actually what was really interesting to me and to, and to others who worked on this was, there was a real range of, uh, of uh, reaction to people within a firm, right? So depending on who you asked internally, whether it was the general counsel or the compliance officer or someone on the business side, they also expressed express real divergent views Um, on on the uh, on the regulation Um, I do think I hope that that uh, another reaction the industry had was that they they saw how much um, we we really reached out to them during the process I think it was a pretty transparent process we try to speak to as many stakeholders as we could Um, this is a regulation that was put out for notice and comment twice right in other words The DFS at the time listened to the comments they received uh, and the final regulation reflects that input, right? For example, if you look at the first reg and the draft and then you looked at what was ultimately promulgated, uh, you'll see differences. The first one doesn't have risk assessments, the final one does. You'll see that there were exemptions that were built in for some covered entities. Um, And then there was was even a timeline that was built in, right? Um, So that there's a transition period uh, for a number of the firms to come into full compliance with with uh, with uh, the the regulation itself.
0: So you mentioned briefly that you were in touch with just a number of stakeholders. So in kind of keeping in theme with with various stakeholders and these reactions, did you hear a lot of reaction from other regulators, um, just in terms of input or or feedback, advice? I mean, how did that how did that work out?
1: Yeah, I think pretty very much like industry, there, there's a real wide range, uh, depending, I'm not going to name any specific regulators, but I don't think it's going to come as a surprise uh, to any of your listeners that, uh, you know, New York likes to get ahead uh, on these issues. Um, and like industry, there were some regulators that really appreciate it. Um, I think some were super supportive. There were others who took a bit of a weight and see approach and and others who felt that perhaps, you know, regulation may not be, uh, you know, the ideal way to go. Um, But there was lots of outreach, like with industry from the start. You know, I know when we first actually entered this fray, uh, the DFS sent a letter to uh, the uh, FBIIC, the Financial and Banking Information Infrastructure, and they delineated what their concerns were Uh, summarized the work they were doing and even kind of outlined what a potential regulation might look like. So there were were no surprises, right? Um, I think now the reg is really serving as a a model for other regulators. And at least what I've heard anecdotally is that the reg is used as a benchmark when some other regulators are doing their exams. Um, So that was good to hear.
0: Yeah, you always, I think, want to be a benchmark unless it's something truly horrible. So I do want to dive into the uh, first American enforcement action. But before I do so, just quickly, Maria, um, kind of in a nutshell, what are some of the key provisions of part 500, or at least parts of this that the DFS is really going to focus on?
1: Yeah, so, so in a nutshell, right, first and foremost, risk assessments. The agency is going to focus on risk assessments. It's a cornerstone of the reg. It's the roadmap that really allows a company to know their business, to show an evince to the regulator, like DFS, that they understand the risks. And it's an opportunity to show how they're addressing them and keeping them under control, right? Um, I will say that this is an area that the DFS is really going to focus on. And that it's not, and, and, and Matt, you know, you can sort of tell me if you think I'm sort of off on this. This isn't a check the box exercise, right? So the DFS is really going to focus um, on how detailed these risk assessments are, um, if they're ongoing, right? How often are you monitoring them and updating them? Um, do the risks and controls match up? Who was involved in the process? It's basically the company's uh, opportunity to tell their story, right? So I'd say risk assessments. Third-party service providers, right? How companies are identifying who their providers are, right? Are you including law firms, accountants, Zoom, what we're doing right now, Um, how they're risk ranking them. Uh, I think, again, that's another in a nutshell area and provision that DFS will focus on. And uh, finally, I think from a compliance perspective, The DFS is going to look at the technology, the controls that a a company, a bank has in place, right? Are you encrypting? Um, Are you testing? But they're also going to look at the people perspective, right? What's the tone from the top, right? Do you have the right people in the right roles? Are they empowered? How often are you doing training? So it's going to really be the the synergy between technology um, and the people.
0: Got it. Well, everyone write that down because now you know what uh, what DFS is going to focus on here. Now, I do want to dive in. I mean, I think that we're kind of in a unique situation that we have the very first of its kind of enforcement action here uh, with the First American case. So I know the hearing is currently scheduled or was scheduled for January 19th of uh, this year. Um, can one of y'all, both of y'all just kind of run us through the substantive charges filed against First American? in detail, give us the key legal issues. And then, you know, to the extent that you have any sort of behind the scenes color um, on what might have happened before the charges were filed, give us give us the juicy gossip.
2: So, so let's start with some of the, uh, the drier facts and then maybe we can move to the juicy gossip. <laughs> the, the hearing is currently scheduled for January 19th. Be interesting to see how that takes place in light of uh, the COVID, you know, continuing emergency, uh, typically hearings take place in a, in a large, uh, hearing room. That's on the sixth floor of the department. But, uh, in light of everything that's happening, uh, not sure how exactly they'll, they'll proceed. The underlying facts here are, uh, they involve first American, uh, financial, which is a a very large uh, national insurance company. And while we're, you know, we're here talking about the IIB, the lessons uh, in this matter are broadly applied to any large um, financial institution. First American, as a title insurer, if you've ever closed on a house, you know, they ask for every sort of very sensitive personal information you have in the closing. And so they have records like uh, your tax records, they have bank account numbers, they have social security numbers, driver license numbers, all the stuff that people on the dark web are just salivating over and um, so they had a database of this information, um, more than 800 million records. They had a web-based portal which would allow their title agents to access this information for particular transactions. It was called Eagle Pro, and what it would do is they would send an email to the title agent with a particular URL how to access that particular document relating to the transaction, and it would have a number associated with it, well, the way they did it is each document was in sequential order, and so if you were sent, um, you were a title agent, and you were sent a document numbered one, two, three, four, five, six, you could, you would, you know, go to the portal and put in that number. But guess what? If you put in one, two, three, four, five, seven, even if you weren't entitled to get that next document, if it was for somebody else's transaction, you would be able to access it. And they did this. Um, sequential numbering and they did it in an unencrypted manner so these um, became uh, available on the internet basically to anybody who could figure out and sort of play around so that's that's how it worked uh, or really didn't work Um, and according to the DFS findings in October 2014 um, you know the company did an update to this portal and basically this vulnerability was introduced that I just described. Prior to October 2014, it wasn't the case, but they didn't update, they didn't check it, this vulnerability was there and anybody could access anybody's information that way just by playing around with the numbers. Um, DFS also found that the company discovered this vulnerability during a penetration test in 2018. So one of the smart things that Maria did when she was writing this regulation was require penetration testing. It's a good thing, it's a best practice, it's pretty much standard. So the company did it, and they actually discovered this vulnerability, but they really didn't do anything about it. And uh, according to the DFS findings, they didn't actually fix the vulnerability until uh, almost six six months later, and that's only because it became known publicly because a very well-known website called Krebs on Security well known if you're in the cybersecurity field at least, uh, actually publicized the vulnerability. So got out to the whole world, hey, guess what, first Americans got this vulnerability, all these hundreds of millions of records are are available to anybody. And uh, it was determined that probably tens of millions, maybe 60 million, maybe more of these records had non-public information, had the kind of sensitive information that I mentioned before, social security numbers, you had bank records, things like that, things you definitely don't want people to know. Um, DFS also found in its findings that um, when they were doing their investigation, they actually interviewed the chief information security officer for First American. That's another good thing that Maria did when she wrote the regulation. Each entity is required to have a chief information security officer, so you have accountability and ownership for cybersecurity. Well, essentially, according to the DFS findings, the, uh, the, the chief information security officer disavowed ownership of this issue um, and uh, failed to adopt appropriate controls um, because this person said they weren't really a part of the IT department's responsibility. <clears throat> so um, the uh, DFS also found, uh, I'll, I'll close up with the findings in a second, that uh, there, in addition to sort of really reckless type conduct, and this is the DFS finding, there were other sort of mistakes along the way. So one of the mistakes was this had been classified as a medium severity incident that needed to be remediated. I think some might argue it's a more uh, serious than medium severity, but then <laughs> it was classified as low severity. And when it got reclassified as low severity, it had a longer time r- timeline for remediation. So um, all these things uh, and more led to uh, this vulnerability. It led to it being discovered and it led to uh, actually, they were able to determine that a number of these records were actually available uh, freely on the internet. So what are the specific charges that DFS has leveled against First American? Because as you mentioned, Megan, First American actually decided not to settle this case. Um, we can go into why, potentially why, we don't actually know in a minute, but they decided they wanted to litigate. They did not settle as many of the big cases with the FS do. The specific charges are first, violating um, failure to have an adequate cybersecurity program. Uh, second, failure to have adequate cybersecurity policies. Third, failure to have um, access privileges that were adequate in order to limit access to this kind of information I've described. Fourth, failure to have uh, adequate training and monitoring program in place. Uh, fifth, failure to encrypt non-public information, the type of sensitive information that I described. Uh, and then I'll just touch briefly on the remedies that DFS is seeking here, and then we can, we can open up to some other discussion. Uh, DFS is seeking uh, monetary penalties under the charges. First, they're seeking a penalty of up to $1,000 per violation. Secondly, they're seeking an order requiring First American to fix everything. And third, whatever other relief is appropriate. Um, so those those are the things that, uh, that are uh, being required. And um, we can talk about um, some of the Maybe why they got into this situation, um, and uh, there's also a key legal issue if you want to cover that as well.:
0: Yeah, I think you know I, I am conscious of time and, and want to get into some key takeaways for our IIB listeners here. Um, but I do you know, I would love to you know, for those of us that have thankfully never sat through a DFS administrative proceeding, um, I do you have a sense of how this proceeding will go? Uh, I mean, what does that look like?
2: Uh, sure. So um, these proceedings are administrative proceedings. They're, um, they are standardized uh, under the state, what's known as the State Administrative Procedure Act. It's similar to the Federal Administrative Procedure Act without getting too technical and lawyery here. It's a, it's a limited proceeding. It's not like a big, you know, long civil litigation that takes years. Um, basically, there's a very limited amount of um, discovery that's allowed between the parties There's a hearing officer appointed by the superintendent, and each side gets to present its evidence. Um, The DFS obviously has a bunch of evidence it's collected because you see it in the charges. Um, First American has some kind of defense, otherwise they wouldn't have decided to litigate. So they'll get a chance to put on their uh, evidence. It can be documents or witnesses. And then the hearing officer will make a decision, have the charges um, been proven by DFS? And once that's done, the superintendent reviews the order, and if she agrees with it, it becomes the final order of the agency, including penalties. And the only thing you can do at that point, if you're first American, is then go to court and challenge it under what's known as Article 78. And again, um, without getting too technical or lawyerly, it's a high burden to challenge an administrative decision like this.
0: Imagine so. Um, so before we kind of turn into to our takeaways for folks, um, I I know that uh, you know DFS at some point had signaled that they were going to be relatively easy on on folks for the first two years. But now that we have these charges, can we expect you know DFS's expectations to ramp up? Or are we going to start to see um, more of these enforcement actions? What does the future look like?
1: Sure, so I, I guess that's the juicy gossip question.
0: That's the juicy gossip.
1: <laughs> <laughs> um, so, you know, I, I've gotten asked this question quite a bit over the past couple of years as to whether or not the DFS is going to ramp up. Um, I mean, look, uh, uh, this this seems at least kind of based on the facts that are out there, uh, one that was really, frankly, low-hanging fruit in my estimation, I think, for, for the DFS. Uh, but I do think... Uh, for all those that are listening, you know the the fact that that early on uh, the DFS implemented these this this kind of longer time frame for this regulation uh, is not, uh, is not necessarily one where you could say hey time is on your side. And so when I get asked whether or not the DFS is going to bring more enforcement actions, um, as a Game of Thrones fans, I often refer to uh, uh, one of my favorite sayings, which is, uh, you know, winter is coming. So I would, I would expect, uh, I would expect more action in this space.
0: Well, with winter literally coming and winter also coming from the DFS, <laughs> I guess we should all kind of uh, begin to to hunker down. So before we start wrapping this up, I do want to just get into some kind of practical advice and and takeaways that you might have to give to financial institutions, especially um, FBOs in this area. Do you have any just advice um, for DFS regulated entities on how they could avoid getting ensnared in a similar investigation like this and then avoid an enforcement action like this?
1: Sure. Uh, so uh, I'll start, Matt. Um, so in terms of a snare, I mean, if this is a snare, I have to say it's it's probably the most conspicuous snare that I've ever seen. <laughs> it's one that's existed for a couple of years. There's cones. There's big neon signs saying, like, enforcement is coming. Um, you know, in terms of uh, of, of this uh, this uh, enforcement action they brought, you know, what I would sort of advise companies out there is take a look at it, right? Understand a lot of the latest relevant events out there, including this enforcement action, and and how it may impact um, your organization, right? Uh, in some ways, there are some really fundamental takeaways. This this enforcement action has kind of given you a little bit of insight. As to how the the DFS interprets the regulation, but also the fact that it will take enforcement actions, uh, I think, when it feels um, appropriate. So, you know, if you have uh, cyber policies and procedures, follow them. If you have cyber experts and the relevant individuals in the right roles, listen to them. If something comes to to your attention as being an incident, right, investigate it appropriately, do reasonable sampling, right? Um, Assess the risk appropriately and act quickly. (laughs) Remediate it as quickly as possible. I mean, pretty fundamental, basic,
0: basic things. Yeah, you would think that would be. Matt, you look like you're good. Yeah,
2: no. Maria, I think you've really covered the landscape there. Um, the, The only thing I would really add is a general rule Mm -hmm. Um, that also applies in this instance which is maintaining an open channel of communication with the supervisory staff at DFS and I can tell you that um, although that seems like a very obvious um, piece of advice it's really not followed very much and uh, I've seen that up close in my three and a half years at DFS I was frequently astounded that um, when an institution was getting into trouble for the first time, that the supervisory staff would tell me, yeah, you know, we don't really know who the folks over there are. We don't really contact us much. You know, we, we try to stay in touch with them. We do our, you know, annual exams, but we don't hear a lot from them. Having that strong line of communication is critical because when you do get in trouble, if you get in trouble, God forbid, um, it really makes a difference. And I can tell you that uh, I'm aware of um, a number of instances where it either mitigated um, the situation or actually, uh, in one instance that I recall, because of the strong relationship between the institution and DFS, it actually ended, ended in a no action uh, in an enforcement posture.
1: I have to say, I think what Matt just said might seem obvious, but maybe one of the most important things that was uh, uh, said, said today, because he's right, you know, you don't want uh, the first time you're meeting either the supervisory or the enforcement staff at DFS to be at a time when uh, you know, you're know you really in trouble or there's a critical issue. And what you're doing is you're asking the regulator uh, to make a judgment call right, on you as an entity and who you're bringing in right at that moment when they really don't have anything to kind of judge it by. So you're right, uh, uh, Matt, that, that's sort of brilliant advice.
0: advice. All right, I want to take a quick step backwards. Um, Do either of y'all think that part 500 more generally, or this enforcement action more specifically, um, what kind of impact do you see these having on cyber enforcement as a whole?
2: Maria, do you want to take the first stab at that? You can be the guinea pig on this one.
0: (laughs)
1: Well, I think that, uh, it will um on cyber enforcement at home, I think it'll be sort of interesting to tell like i said i uh, you know I, th- this this has really um, uh, put out to many companies that this particular agency uh is is willing to go there if need be. It'll be interesting to see if other regulators uh follow um, I guess we'll see
2: yeah i i I think that's right, and the only thing I would add to that is. This is the first, at least for now, to be litigated enforcement action. Big enforcement action, right? So the first big one was Equifax. Equifax ended up settling with, you know, all of the state attorneys general and DFS and some others. So that was settled. The second big one was the Capital One breach, which Capital One settled with the OCC and the Federal Reserve a few months ago. That was a major breach, as everybody knows. But again, that wasn't litigated. So this is the first really litigated one. And I think it says um, to folks that agencies, when they have a strong case, they're going to take you to court or take you to proceeding. And, and there, there are going to be serious consequences. So you know, follow all the advice that Maria gave you. And if you're in an enforcement posture, gosh, do everything you can to try to resolve it in a reasonable matter. Obviously, if, if there's overreaching by the agency, you know, um, th- there may be a reason to push back. But, you know, I, I think a resolution typically is best in the long-term interest of all of your stakeholders.
0: That makes sense. Agreed. Last but not least, we can't ever leave a podcast these days without bringing up, covid and its impact on any number of things so do either of you see any sort of impact on dfs's expectations or enforcement priorities in light of the covid pandemic and everyone kind of in a virtual world
1: i'll be the guinea pig again yeah i, I definitely think that there's a couple of things the dfs is going to be looking at uh unfortunately in this sort of covid pandemic world that we're living in uh, they're gonna be looking at you know, your business continuity policies. Uh, there'll be a real sort of focus again on risk assessments with a real light as to how you are um, risk ranking and identifying, let's say things like third party service providers, right? Um, you know it could be a world where a couple of years ago what we're doing right now engaging in doing you know working remotely and, and being on zoom or google meet or whatever sort of service that you're using may not have been uh, considered a, a critical third-party uh, vendor times have changed right so I would take a look at whatever practices are in place to kind of get you through this pandemic and update them right um, Final piece of advice, if if these kind of issues uh, are not being discussed in a meaningful way by your uh, C-suite or your board,
0: you know, get it on the agenda. (laughs) I love it. That feels like a good note to close on. Maria, Matt, thank you so much for your time today. This was wonderful, insightful, hopefully helpful, maybe a little cathartic for the both of you. Uh, We really appreciate your time. (laughs) Thank you. Really appreciate it.
2: Thank you, Megan. Enjoyed it very much.
0: Thank you again for joining us for Bank Talk with the Institute of International Bankers. We hope you enjoyed, and we hope to see you again soon for the next episode.